Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's time for another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Mitch Michaels, as always, the host of this show from the Expo Studios in Santa Monica, California. Delighted, as always, to have you listening to this show where we have a great interview lined up with former pro, recently retired Vanya King. She was top 50 in singles, won two Grand Slam titles in doubles, is doing great things off the court. Great interview with Vanya King. We go for about 45, 50 minutes talking about all of her endeavors of serving up Hope Foundation as well. A lot of great stuff with Vanya King. But before we get to that, I want to just spend a few minutes here recapping what's been going on in the tennis world to keep you up to date here. We're in the final push of the season, a tennis season that some people think may be a little too long. Biontech announcing that she won't be playing Poland's Billie Jean King Cup tie because of the nature of her going and traveling. She's in the Czech Republic now. She's committed to San Diego in the WT event next week. And then the finals in Fort Worth. A lot of travel. Logistically, it's tough. I think reform is necessary in a lot of ways. But I am not, you know, I don't think there's any realistic chance that the season gets shortened. Financial opportunities being there. Even top players trying to get into a good rhythm. So maybe some reform, but I don't think we're going to see the schedule shortened uh, at all, to say the least. That said, I want to shout out Maya Sharif, who became the first Egyptian singles champion, winning a title this past week. That's somebody to look at. Yoshi Nishioka wins a title, beats Denis Shapovalov. He's playing some phenomenal tennis as well. And, of course, we can't forget Novak Djokovic, who's back again, returned to his winning ways, back in the winner's circle, wins Tel Aviv pretty much at ease. Uh, beats Marin Cilic in the final, continues to win this week. 89 career titles for Novak, and he looks rejuvenated, ready to make another push, and proving that he's not going anywhere for the considerable future. So no way back in the winner's circle. And also shout-out to Mark andrea Husler from Switzerland, 26 years old. We got another Swiss tournament champion. A long way to go to get to Roger and even Stan, but... Husler winning uh, a singles title as well. So I've got to give a shout-out to the people that are putting the time in winning now. There's a lot of great tennis going on in the world. We've got some upsets going on in the small tournaments with Alcarez out already and Casper Ruud losing. So there is some fatigue. There may be some burnout, but a lot of tennis to be played yet. There's Masters events coming up, Paris and Shanghai uh, on the men's side. Uh, you also have the opportunities for the women's events with San Diego coming up, a 500 event with, as of now, 16 of the top 20 in the game playing, and then the WTA finals in Fort Worth. So we can't wait to break down all of that for you. A lot going on in the world of tennis and a lot going on on this podcast, Tennis Channel Inside In. This week's guest, Vanya King, won two doubles Grand Slams, was able to get to the top 50, grew up in California, and found a way. She talks a lot about how her tennis career progressed, doubles success that she had being inspired by the Williams family what it was like to play Serena in a Grand Slam tournament and she talks about her serving up Hope Foundation all this great stuff all the amazing stuff she's doing off the court it's Finding King now on Tennis Channel Inside It
Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. My name is Mitch Michaels. This is on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Great show this week as we're into October. Tennis season's still rolling along, and my guest this week on the show played professional tennis for the better part of 15 years, California native, two Grand Slam doubles titles, and uh, reached the top 50 in the world in singles, and is a founding member of a foundation serving up hope that's doing a lot of great things worldwide. It's Vanya King. Welcome to the show. Also a Tennis Channel broadcaster, too, so I got to point that out. But Vanya King, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I have a, a lot of hats. So I guess we can start here. Like, what have you been up to recently? I know we'll get to the foundation and, and talk extensively, but how has it been in that post-retirement since Charleston 2021, the delayed retirement? You finally got to go out and these last, you know, 18 months, what have they been like for you? So... I retired last year, but I was really, I felt retired for about three years. COVID delayed my retirement by a year. And then even when I had decided my last tournaments, uh, that was in 2019, I recognized that, you know, this was the end for me. So I was going to retire beginning of 2020, then COVID. Um, so it's been a very busy uh, last 18 months, as it has been, I think, for everyone kind of coming out of the pandemic. It was very difficult for everyone, including myself, um, being a tennis player for so long, you know, processing the end of my career, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, and now besides serving a Pope, which is my nonprofit, I have been on the USTA national board since last year, the beginning of last year. I've also one of the founding members of an Asian American Pacific Islander Tennis Association. I've done some other volunteer roles with USTA, like I'm on the SoCal DEI committee. Uh, even though I've been living in Florida, or I, I'd never admit that I live in Florida, but I've been there for the last yeah. 12 years. I My heart's still in, in LA and California. So um, trying to give back as much as I can there. I also work part-time for the WTA as a consultant with a few different departments. So I started with charities, which is my passion. And um, and then I also do work with the coaching department, uh, trying to get more female coaches at the highest levels, which is the WTA mm -hmm. um, with, let me think. There's um, a lot. It's like, yeah, you have a lot to recap. And then <laughs> yeah, sorry. Like I, I need to like bullet point this. Um, yeah. And it also works, as I mentioned before this, I have ADHD, yeah. so I'm very distractible, um, which helps why I like to juggle lots of things. I like to stay busy. I'd rather be yeah. more busy. Than that. Did you feel like, I mean, kind of jumping ahead, but maybe not like, did you feel like you had like a lot of natural, like leadership tendencies growing up because you're on all these boards and you're doing all this stuff and, you know, tennis players sometimes and pro athletes and just people in general, a lot of people just want to do their job to the best of their ability and then just kind of relax, but you're taking on all this extra effort, leadership. And I just wonder as a kid and then growing up, do you feel like you had those qualities? Well, yes and no. No, I never wanted the responsibility of being a leader, although my nickname when I was sub five years old was uh, coach or bossy, <laughs> just literally bossy. That was my nickname. Those are two different, like <laughs> Nick, those have two different connotations on them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but they were along the, the same yeah. lines. Basically. Yeah. I, I love to tell people what to do, huh. but I didn't, I didn't want to do the work. Behind it. The good thing is that, uh, I am competitive, which obviously helped mm -hmm. with my career and I'm goal oriented. So now 
out of tennis, you know, when I see things that I really want to achieve and I see maybe gaps in the industry. Um, so a lot of the roles that I'm doing is, you know, trying to trying to help players on their um, off court, you know, enhancing their off court lives or, mm-hmm. um, you know, with USTA trying to, well, it's mostly player related because that was my life. Um, but with my nonprofit as well, you know, where I see gaps and just wanting to, to achieve that goal because I feel compelled to do it. And um, so I don't mind doing the work as long as there's a goal attached to it. So growing up, I mean, you're, you mentioned California, LA through and through uh, parents from Taiwan, baby of the family had the brother mm-hmm. that played at Duke was, was your tennis journey. Did it just start out wanting to be like your brother and get on the court? Were you kind of the one that took to it the most? How did you, I guess, come up and fall in love with the game? Um, it's interesting because now I have time to actually process through what happened in my career. Um, I I wouldn't say that I fell in love with the game. Um, it was, you know, I was so young. We were, I was just a kid and my sisters and I followed my brother who's seven years older than myself. And he was a really good junior in SoCal. Then he became number one in the nation. He won Kalamazoo twice. And so I definitely admired him, right? Like he was my old, he, I it wasn't because of tennis, but it was because it was my older brother. Um, and so we also, we always tagged along with him and we were always, oh, that's Philip King's little sisters. And it was a point of pride for me because I really looked up to him. I did. I was gleeful when people started referring to him as Vanya King's brother because um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. roles got reversed. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of tennis specifically, not necessarily, but I'm I'm glad that I did. I, I admired him, so that's why I wanted to do it. Um, but I'm glad that I I did play tennis because, I mean, frankly, like I'm not a very athletic person. I'm short. Um, I don't think there was any other sport that wow. I would have been successful at. I don't know, maybe ping pong. Yeah, you found your lane though, and uh, you know you're Long Beach native too, and. I just got to point this out for some people that don't know. Yes, Long, not LA. No, no, but Long. but Long Beach Poly is like a, a hotbed for mostly athletics. You know, we've talked about Tony Gwynn, Chase Sutley, Billie Jean King, obviously, uh, and then obviously Cameron Diaz, the actress there. So it's just a hotbed for entertainment success. Yeah, Snoop Dogg as well. <laughs> uh, can't forget him. But what was it like being there? I know there were probably some you know future NFL players in your class and people that just excelled at all these different sports. What was that experience, like just being surrounded by all these super athletes. Yeah. Well, caveat, I only went for a year, Mm -hmm. but I remember that sports was a huge part of the culture at Poly. I mean, there was like the really smart side because it had one of the best academic programs, um, but then it also had such a robust track and field, basketball, football program. And I remember training with the track and field team, the girls the well, no, girls track and field team. Um, and it was just normal, you know, excellence was normal, mm-hmm. which was nice from the tennis perspective. Obviously I was heads, head and shoulders above what the level was for tennis, mm-hmm. but, um, it was, it was a terrific experience and it gives me a lot of pride that we, I went there. Yeah. You went there a year and I just, I'm trying to fill in the gaps here. You were playing pro and then won the pro tournament when you were still high school age. What was the, what was the level like jumping? Like, like, how did you, I mean, obviously I was going to, normally I ask is college, even in the cards, you're playing pro and doing well at the pro level. 
when did you realize, okay, we're pushing forward to pro and I have something special here? Um, I wanted to go to college really badly, uh, because my parents put a lot of pressure on me, especially my dad, who is my coach. And so he put a lot of pressure on me to win and to perform. Um, and I just, by the time, you know, high school rolled around, I wanted to be normal. Like I wanted to have a, a normal life with, with my friends and not have to be an adult basically. Like I didn't realize that at the time I couldn't articulate it, but I didn't want to, I didn't want the pressures of that. My dad made me play in the 16s when I was 12 and then in the 18s when I was 13. And so when I was 14, I was three in the nation. And then 15, I started playing um, lower level professional events. I didn't do that well in, I was ranked maybe 900. But you were the um, third best at under 18 at age 14. You were beating basically all the kids your own age. And then you play up a level and you're doing well there. I, it's... Without it's a yeah, funny I'm, tennis, like the fascination I have with tennis players is there's a lot of players like yourself that college is the dream, college is a goal, but you almost play your way out of that. Like now with the level of college being so good, maybe it's changed a little, but I can understand why from your perspective, you just got kind of too good for the players your age and it's only the natural progression. Yeah. Well, weirdly, I only realized this, <laughs> this, this month, um, because again, like I said, I, I now have time to process through the past. And when I was playing, you're just in the moment and mm -hmm. fully, fully um, committed to what you're trying to achieve and your performance. And that means sacrificing everything, including even thinking about anything else, including the past. Um, but I, so when I was ranked like 900, when I was 15 to 16, and at that time, which is so long ago, you know, back in the day and 20 years ago um, or less, you had to make it like 14, 15, 16 is when you make it. Yeah. So 14 is early, 15 was normal and 16, you were late. So if 16, you didn't make it and make it meant like you got to win at least a pro tour, a pro title, you know, probably top hundred, if not top 150. And you had to do this at 14 or 15, otherwise you were late. And so I got a wild card into the US Open Qualies at 16. Um, and this is when I was looking at colleges and I qualified and I won a round. Around that time, I also had committed to Stanford. And then the, by the following year, oh, actually I think I was, no, no, I was 16. I was either 15 or 16, now I can't even remember. <laughs> I'm that old. Um, and so by the following year, yeah, I was 17 then. So by the following year, oh, yeah, I was 17. So then I was late. Now mm. I was beyond, well, you know, any yeah. hope of coming back, you know. Uh, and then I got to the top 100 and I still hadn't turned pro. So basically, when I was at Wimbledon, I was ranked 70 in the world. And I called my parents and I said, I've made my decision. I'm going to college. Mm. And it wasn't until this month I realized, oh, that's why they made me turn pro. I thought that they were just you know, they didn't care about how I felt, yeah. which they probably didn't too. They're Asian, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, you know, they were like, well, you're top hundred. I'm sure they saw I was top hundred. I had made it like, clearly this was a pathway I was already successful at. Um, so in, in that regard, like I turned pro when I basically was at that level. Yeah. I'm, I'm also, I'm also glad that it's kind of changed a little bit that now I don't think that timeline that 14, 15, 16, like early on time late, I think it has kind of lengthened. I think there's a lot of players that are hitting their strides later in the, in the early and mid twenties, even, 
Um, but now, I mean, when that when you won that title in Bangkok in 2006, was that expected? Was that just an unconscious feeling? Like, how was how was the process getting there and then ultimately holding the trophy? So I was 17. So yeah, I turned I turned pro when I was 17, and then about two months later won my first and only WTA <laughs> title. I made a few WTA finals after yeah. that. It wasn't unexpected, although everything in, at that time was in a way unexpected, but it wasn't expected because, um, and one of the things I think from the outside, like spectators don't see the amount of work that goes in. So they might, you know, they go to the US Open and they're like, oh my gosh, the players are playing amazing or they're playing terribly and they don't know the history behind it and how much work goes into it. So I had been working with my coach for the better part of a year. And I went to the series of events and Bangkok was the last one of three that I was going to in Asia. And this was, you know, after the summer season, there was, you know, mm -hmm. multiple segments of the year. And I remember um, my coach at the time, who is Ray, his name's Ray Ruffles, an incredible coach. He coached the Woodies for those that are, you know, 50 plus, uh, they'll <laughs> remember the Woodies. Yeah. And, um, worked for USTA and then he helped me. He said to me, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to win one of these tournaments. And I had never, I had <laughs> never been even close to, I don't even think I've made the quarterfinals of a WTA event. Cause I probably only played like five at that point. Right. Um, and he was just, you know, very clear minded about what my game was going to look like. I mean, at that time, cause he was um, he's Aussie and really incorporated an all court game. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was serving balling. Um, by the time Bangkok rolled around, I think I was hitting on average, like five to seven aces a match, which was a lot for me again, being little. Um, I was kick serving, which I never had a kick serve except for that one year I worked mm -hmm. with him. And yeah, I mean, he had just so much confidence in me, but we built it, yeah. you know, we built it through the year. It's so interesting you say that because I've talked to a couple of different coaches and players and they all say that that success isn't, even if it looked like flash in the pan, it's not. There's a process getting there and you might have a close loss in like the second or third round the week before, but that could be a sign that you're getting closer. And it's fascinating to hear that. And I know it's kind of, you know, like you were just talking about, we're 15, you know, 16 years since then. And that perspective of, you would have liked more titles, but that you won a WTA event has to hold more reverence as time's gone along and you've kind of stepped out of the hamster wheel. Um, yes and no. I mean, it, there is a, a nice checkbox for players. Mm -hmm. You know, I've talked to some players before who said to me, oh yeah, I would have, I would trade if I could trade as if we could trade, but you know, I would <laughs> yeah, trade fantasy. a semifinals and singles for a slam and doubles. And I was like, no, 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 I would trade. <laughs> I would trade. I'll trade you, you know, but then I got one more. So I'll have yeah, one semi single. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but um, I mean, it so yes and no. I'm what I felt like in my career in singles was I, especially as I got older, when I was younger, when I was younger, not so much because I was trying to figure out who I was and mm -hmm. who I was as a player too. But um, every time I got on the court, I felt like I could beat any whoever's in front of me, except Serena. Um, I wasn't, I didn't have to win or wasn't yeah. necessarily guaranteed to win, but I knew that I could. Um, and so there was a lot of power in that. I felt, you know, a lot of confidence in that. My challenge was that I wasn't consistent. And so I think that players are usually looking at failures, unfortunately, because 
if you think about it, you lose every single week unless you win the tournament every single week. And so you're constantly, and and just the society and, and the industry, even internally and your coaches, obviously it rewards success and then it punishes failure. So um, I wasn't able to be mentally consistent enough in singles, um, but I did take a lot of pride that I felt like I could beat whoever was in front of me. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're with Vanya King here on Tennis Channel Inside In. That's uh, very sage advice, and uh, I think perspective kind of does change as you evolve and get older. Uh, you mentioned your doubles career. Was that always, I mean, before you kind of hit in that groove and got to number three in the world and won those majors, was that something that you started, that you always had a passion for? Was it just kind of a way to make a living? Were you a doubles player growing up? How did you get going in that game and, you know, eventually become successful? Yeah. Um, back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, we're not uh, that old. You're the same age as me. So I don't want to like, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, in tennis, tennis years though, I'm yeah. like 10 generations out. So players played everything, you know, you played whatever event possible, you played every match that you could. And I learned that as a kid as well. You know, my parents, again, being immigrants from Taiwan, not having a lot of money. So if we had a $25 entry fee, we're going to make that money go as far as possible. So I played singles, doubles, backdraws. Um, and, and I had mentioned my dad was my coach and he put a lot of pressure on me. So doubles was a space that I didn't have that pressure. Um, I didn't have the trauma that I, I did have trauma because he um, was too hard on me, um, and but I didn't have that. So doubles was a safe space for me. I also just gravitated towards it in terms of I understood it. I would again from a physical standpoint, it suited me better. I had someone else that could compliment me. So all the things that I couldn't do, my partner could help me do. Um, I was a strategic player, and I really enjoy that. I enjoy figuring out what's going on in the court and. Um, finding ways to combat your opponent's strengths and weaknesses and enhancing your strengths, hiding your weaknesses. So um, I just, for several reasons, gravitated towards it and was more successful. Was the partnership with uh, Shvedova, was that just blind chance? Because you guys literally just started playing right before you won all those <laughs> those majors. So, yeah. I, yeah. It, well, <laughs> I mean, I think unless you are dominating completely, like a, you know Serena did and Roger did and Rafa, mm -hmm you need a little luck mm -hmm. I mean, and then you need a little luck to have the opportunities presented. And then you need to have the guts to take those opportunities and perform. Um, so Slava and I knew each other in juniors and I knew that she was going to be a good fit for me as a partner because she was big and tall and strong. And, um, but we also got along. She didn't speak a word of English in juniors, but we both had father coaches and that were very hard on us and very overbearing. So we didn't even have to say anything. We would just like glance at each other and be like, okay, I got yeah. you. Like we had a, a kinship. And then that year we played together, I was actually playing with Annalena Gronefeld. 
And at Indian Wells, she um, had a stress fracture in her foot. And so I had to find other partners for the French season and then Wimbledon. And so if it wasn't for Anna, and she, yeah. <laughs> we've talked about that too. She's like, you remember you were supposed to play with me? And I'm, I said, yeah, I do remember that, but um, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, no, it's like, it's just so fascinating to hear from the outside. Like there seems to be this whole notion that, oh, doubles players and it's strategy and it's formula. But the more I talk to players, they're like, oh, this person's cool. I'm cool. Hey, let's play some doubles. And then they end up going on <laughs> to succeed. So, well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. Um, I was a player that I had to play with someone that I got along with off court. And I knew because Slav and I both had overbearing coaches slash fathers as a kid, we needed to have a lot of fun on the court. Like mm -hmm. we, if we put any pressure on each other and there's some players that put a lot of pressure and you can just see them, you know, how anxious they get and they start yelling at their partner that would make both of us freeze up and play worse. So from a personality standpoint, although we're opposites in many ways, cause I'm more hyper, I'm more gregarious. When I know people, I am an introvert, but, um, and she's very quiet, you know, stoic. And so I complimented her in that way, but we both knew energy wise that to have fun, to be relaxed. And then I specifically, wanted to find a partner that had a lot of power. So for mm. me, it was both. Like okay. I definitely needed someone that was a nice person and yeah. easygoing, but um, on court too, I mean, just having a nice person wasn't going to cut it. Yeah. You, you definitely seemed from what I've watched and, and followed just the love of the game was always there and you always had fun kind of playing tennis, at least outwardly. Uh, and I bring this up in your doubles career because it was that U S open, it was that U S open doubles final where you know, most tennis players in that moment are rigid and they're just so serious and can psych themselves out. And you had the little wardrobe issue that just took like forever to kind of get going out of the court with like your logo or something. And, but you were like, it looked like you were just kind of like, oh, oh, well, just got to deal with this. And, you know, I could just see yeah. a lot of players flipping out in that moment. I mean, like I said, I am an introvert, although it didn't seem like it, but I did not draw energy from, I don't draw energy from other people. So I didn't draw energy from the crowd. And when I played doubles, I was able to focus my energy and my um, stress or lack of, and it also helped me relieve my stress on my partner. So we'd be doing this together. So um, it was kind of like, unfortunately, I mean, that's what I had to do is just block mm -hmm. out everything on the outside. But I also felt empowered when I yeah. had a teammate there with me. Did you find there was like a tug of war with your singles career as you kind of progressed and you achieved success in doubles that it might have been taking away? Or were you more committed to doubles? What was the process of managing your career with those two paths? Um, from a, a prioritization standpoint, I always had singles as first priority. Um, and so there were some logistical complications with that because especially if let's say I was playing a bigger tournament and I was in the qualifying, I couldn't play doubles. So, but I always knew singles was my first priority, but from a like love of the game standpoint, you know, I, I enjoyed playing both. Okay. I guess a, a little follow-up would be hypothetically, if you were in the position that we saw maybe at Wimbledon, where you went on a hot streak at singles, could you see yourself, could you have seen yourself pulling out of the doubles to focus on singles? And, or would you maybe have a tougher time with that? Um, I don't know. 
I don't know. It depends. Yeah. I have never done anything that I didn't talk to my partner about. Mm-hmm. So like it, it depends if, and there's, if, you know, it's gray yeah. because if I was genuinely hurt and I knew, okay, I only have this amount of gas for singles, then yeah. But, um, you know, if I wasn't genuinely hurt and I could power through the doubles, I don't think it would have been fair for my doubles partner. Okay. Yeah. Luckily, you didn't have to make that decision. So you yeah. didn't have any. You put me on the spot in a hypothetical sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, last thing on the doubles talk, uh, what was the Wimbledon ball like in 2010? Any good stories? Um, I mean, there was no wild stories. Okay. Uh, no, when, when players are in public, we behave for the most yeah. part. I guess just maybe rubbing <laughs> elbows. Not, it was, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't looking oh, for the I mean, after dark stories or anything like that, but just, oh, you know. I, was, I, well, I mean, I didn't see any at that, mm-hmm. that time. Um, well, Roger and Serena won the men's and women's. So that was pretty cool that we got to spend time with them. I mean, just at Wimbledon in general, um, it was, yeah, it was just a really serendipitous time. We, Slava and I, uh, we went clubbing in the middle <laughs> Saturday. <laughs> you know, we had Good. to stay relaxed. So, yeah. and then we met um, the Royal Ballet School or Academy is in London and they had their graduation ceremony. So we met all of these mm-hmm beautiful ballet dancers that were graduating similar age as us and so we started inviting them to the tennis so it started with two and then every match and by the finals we had like 15 of them from the school that came to cheer for us which was awesome so invited uh, one of our new friends to the Wimbledon ball so it was just a very surreal experience for us. Yeah, let that be a lesson to all young kids out there that dream about winning Wimbledon one day. You know, have some fun <laughs> in, in between. <laughs> there is value yeah. in, um, you know, having a balance. <laughs> That's so true. You don't want to psych yourself out. You know, you mentioned the Serena earlier, and obviously she's retiring. Venus, not far away, we think. The Williams family story is especially you. You've gone on record as saying it. You're also from California. You came from a non-traditional tennis background. You got to meet Richard Williams. And if you could just expand on that, the similarities you saw between their story and yours, a dad coaching them that just saw an opportunity in tennis and is clearly still having an effect on you with what you're doing in your post-career. Yeah, I mean, Serena is amazing. She started a decade before me. I watched her on TV and then we played together. I feel honored now that I was able to play against her. Um, and then she retired, a, you know, a few years after I did. So yeah, that just shows what a legacy that she has um, physically, emotionally, mentally, and also um, just in terms of history. Uh, her dad inspired my dad a lot. So thanks, Richard. Um, <laughs> Good and bad, yeah. Uh, like, oh yeah, I can, you know, I can make my daughters just play with each other and we'll do six to eight hours of tennis a day. And, um, so there was the tough parts of it, you know, there was obviously a lot of rigor involved, but I mean, most importantly, there was an inspiration, you know, someone that was, I mean, didn't look quite like me, but being a minority, 
um, was very compelling, you know, having a father that coaches his daughters, which is very different than the, frankly, white male dominated sport where it's a white coach wearing white clothes, teaching a, a white player. So it was really breaking the mold. And I think that gave my parents and my dad specifically a lot of inspiration. So I can't say I would be where I am if it weren't for her. I can't say a lot of us would be where we are if it weren't for them, you know, really spearheading this for us and being progressive and and fighting for it because it was tough back then. You know, there was a lot of discrimination, racism. And yeah, and then when I got to play with her and against her on tour, that was just icing on the cake. Yeah, that legacy, and I mean, it's funny, we, I talked with John Wertheim about this. It's not just in the States, in inner cities. It's felt literally worldwide, different backgrounds of people that came into a game that was traditional and the quote-unquote non-traditional backgrounds and found success were directly inspired by her. Unfortunately, the two matches against her didn't go your way. You got to play Venus a little bit too. And yeah, even, even though it didn't, you know, didn't work out for you, those are still just moments that you're going to be able to cherish forever and even though, as you said, it was the one time playing Serena is when you thought that I can't, maybe I can't win today, but it's just still, <laughs> it's fun to well, compete. The first, one, the first one, I wouldn't mind erasing because I lost 0-1. And yeah, and... I, I left the scores out. So oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. The second one was 3-3, three and three, which was a respectable score. I mean, more importantly, you know, if I lost 0-1 and, and I felt like I was competitive, I felt like I was, you know, be able, being able to present myself and my game the way that I wanted to, but I just didn't. Like I never really got, I never played in that situation before. It's very different, you know, playing yeah. Serena on Ash, um, prime time, full stadium, especially Ash is so big. And you've got these cameras that loop all the way from the top that come and just like sit and look at you. And you're like, oh my God, there's millions of people looking at me fail right now. So <laughs> I mean, it's super stressful. Yeah. Um, so I would say like, yeah, Serena was the one player that I felt I could not beat because I knew that it was not just playing her, which was, she was an incredible player, of course, but also the moment I had to play the moment too. Mm-hmm. And whenever I played on the biggest stadiums, like I had a a nice threshold of like 10,000 people. But when we got to like more than 10,000, like I I worked up a tolerance, you know, when I was a kid, it was like 10 people, you know, and then I worked up a tolerance (laughs) to 10,000. And then, um, but, you know, against Serena, you're talking 50, 100 plus broadcasting out. So that was the hard part. Right. This You're one of the few people in the world having played against her that know how to kind of answer this too, but there's how she is as a player, which is all time great, obviously how she hits it, how she attacks, but also the moment and how good Serena is starting these matches and having been there before. I think that's why yourself players that were ranked higher in the top five, top three, even Serena would just get out to these early, like dominant moments because they're not as good as they may be as ready as prepared for the moment she is. And then it's, you know, three love in the blink of an eye, you sit down once you're like, what just happened? Yeah, when she was at the top of her game, her serve, you know, people think that she had a lot of power, which she did. But for me, what was so impressive, one was her serve and the poise under pressure with her serve, like really being able to get out of pressure situations in a way that sometimes guys can do because of the physical differences. And then under pressure, so it's not really when she was dominating, but when she was put onto defense, she was able to still strike the ball with a lot of power. And so for me, 
that's not what people normally think of, but on defense, that was Mm -hmm. incredible where you could, you know, pull her out wide and she would still hit the ball and put you in a difficult Mm -hmm. position. Whereas that ball against any other player would come up and float up, you know, high and give you time. So yeah, I just like, so basically like the strength of her wrist was (laughs) was very impressive. (laughs) That's a good one. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A few more things with Vanya King here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, mentioned that 2021 was the official retirement in Charleston. It was pushed a year. But at the start of this interview, you mentioned that you kind of were thinking about retiring for the last couple of years. And I just want to know, when did you start to kind of consider that you're at the end of the road and it was time or time to start thinking about walking away from the game? I had ankle surgery in 2017 and I didn't know it at that time or didn't want to admit it, but that took me to the end of my career because I never recovered fully. It was a surgery that the doctors told me I should be back in competition in three months. So that means back training at least by a month, you know, because competition, there's a lot of preparation involved. Um, And I wasn't able to walk normally for nine months. And like to this day, my, I've lost a lot of mobility in my ankle. Um, I developed uh, surgically induced arthritis from it. um, And then a year after I had my surgery and I stopped again because I had plateaued significantly far away from where I needed to be. Um, I went to see a bunch more doctors and found out that actually I have a torn ligament and two stretched lateral ligaments in my ankle, um, which were not addressed in my original surgery. So yeah, I mean, injury, it wasn't an acute injury that was a career ending injury right at that moment, but it was a career ending injury over time. So it was like a slow poison. I mean, I don't want to say that's better or worse because all retirements are different and they can hit harder, but did you find yourself, I guess, when you did play your last match more at peace than if it was more of a kind of quicker decision, like retiring in the, in the month or so before? I think so. I think, um, dying slowly. Dying slowly is better. I don't want to say that. I think it's better because you have time to, you know, make amends and, and think about Mm -hmm. things and time to hopefully become at peace with it. Uh, I mean, it took me two years to just even say the word retire. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't even say the word and yeah, I think that was, I probably retired a year later than I should have. Although if I wanted to just play doubles, I could have done that. Cause like I came back in 2019, I played one tournament before US Open. I, I didn't play, I played Australia. Then I stopped for another six to eight mm-hmm. months. Then I played one tournament before US Open. And then um, Caroline Dolheide and I made the semifinals. I'm not saying that we for sure would have done that, but like if I wanted to play doubles, I could have, but it wasn't. I I just didn't, again, you know, what was really motivating for me was going out on court and feeling like I can do this. I can Mm -hmm. beat whoever's in front of me. And I did not feel that way 
anymore. It just felt different. I think there might be a couple silver linings in the slower process. And one being that it gave you time to really set up your post tennis career where you've hit the ground running and the broadcast work, your foundation, you didn't have that period of one year decompress. What am I going to do now? Figuring out your life. You kind of had that, and maybe you had that in the back of your mind all along, but it was kind of better to get going and all already have that foundation. Yeah. I mean, I saw something recently about Del Potro mm. feeling, you yeah. know, very emotional and devastated that he's lost the sport. And I can empathize to a small extent, you know, obviously it was never as good as he was or didn't have the resume he did. And also the, the difficulty of his injuries, but yeah, I mean, there is, um, there was a lot of value for me having that longer off ramp still, there is nothing like being done with work, you know, and then really being able to now you're now forced to go into the next thing or whatever the next few things are, but simultaneously trying to process the grief of losing your career. And it sounds so in a way I feel trivial when people say, I mean, careers obviously are, is a weighty word, but career is not quite the same I think for someone who's an adult that starts a career, then someone who's a child that starts their career and then transitions into that as an adult, um, because our self-identity, our uh, self-worth, like it's it's a whole new, it's a whole life in its own is intertwined with tennis. So career in itself doesn't feel like a strong enough word for it. And there is, there is a time of grief and there's nothing you can do about it. Like it's losing something that is, yourself and so dear to you. And um, so I needed, so in regards to that, I had to just leave that and as in let it be like it would come and it would go and, and with time it's gotten better, but um, goal oriented part of me was like, okay, let's go figure out what we want to do next and stay busy because as tennis players, we're always physically and mentally engaged. And so now, you know, I was like, okay, I want to find something not physically engaging because now I'm broken. <laughs> My body's broken, but mentally engaging. Um, and then, uh, and I found now it was, it wasn't easy. Like I just put out so many feelers that I, I started crossing things off and was like, no, no, no. And then no, but, oh, I like this aspect of it. And then little by little, I got one yes. And now I'm doing a bunch of things that I absolutely love. So I'm really happy. Yeah, only athletes really have to have this reckoning at their part in their career in their 30s where most careers are just starting to take off. They have to, you know, start from scratch. But again, the athletic life is great, and it's, you know, living out your dreams, even if it's not the longest, is still great. Um, actually, before we get to the foundations, I do want to talk about some of the other interests, and I like to just kind of, you know, do research and see what the guests on the show are into and what they kind of like to do, and Okay. Yeah. There, you know, there's not really many guests I've talked to that have a passion for music like you or just okay. singing in general. And we're not talking like amateur karaoke stuff. We're talking like singing at like as a legit singer, almost like you're singing at Dodger stadium, you're singing clips to introduce the U S open and, uh, you know, God bless America. I saw you sing the Vanessa Williams song. Where, where did this passion <laughs> for music come from? that you realized you were this good at singing and, you know, could keep performing in front of people? Um, well, I haven't performed in front of anyone in a while, <laughs> but I started singing when I was a kid. So four or five years old, my sisters took singing lessons and 
again, similar to my brother, you know, chasing after my brother, I was like, I want to take singing lessons. So, um, but fell in love with music. My dad loves to sing, although I don't think he's that good of a singer, but <laughs> he's very confident, okay. which, which goes a long way. Um, but he's musically inclined. And I think I just got that from him. I'm not sure. I never thought too much about it. Um, but singing was an outlet for me, especially when I was anxious or stressed, I could sing and I could dive into that and dive into my music. Um, but now I don't sing as much anymore um, because I have a, this, it's called a semicircular canal dehiscence, which I'm sure you've heard before. Um, <laughs> oh. I was like, what? When the doctor told me. So basically I fell when I was playing um, about oh. seven, eight years ago and I chipped off a piece of bone around my ear canal and it causes excessive vibrations into my ear. Um, so my own voice is painful. Mm. Uh, it gets too loud. So anyways, not to be the Debbie Downer. I do still love singing. I still manage to do it more on a social okay. side. I go to karaoke's on Monday. Okay. <laughs> well, you're still, yeah. I mean, you're still better than most people <laughs> that try to sing karaoke. So that's good. Um, and then I guess it, I just wanted to follow up. Is it true that you would wake people up or get complaints at hotels for singing too? Oh well? yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> there were times and I tried to keep it, you know, at normal hours before 8 PM you know, like 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. But there were times I would get a call from front desk and I'd be like, um, we're getting to play the singing. Like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll sort it out. Don't worry. <laughs> What's like a good piece of advice you can offer to somebody who tries to go to karaoke, like a type of song to sing, like not to get out of their comfort zone? Do you have any, do you have a strategy or just for the lesser singers uh, out there? <laughs> um, well, Find a song that's within your range. And then when all else fails, just have a lot of confidence. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, I think, how it was when you sang and uh, Mark Knowles tried to sing with you at the one event. And it was just, I like <laughs> Mark, but he should not sing anymore. That's uh, good to know. Find your range. No Nora Jones for the rest of us out there. <laughs> um, and then I guess the other hobby I just want to ask you on is, uh, is it true you're an avid bird watcher? Yes, I am. Okay. I, th that's not my world. That's not my oh, lane, okay. but I'd like to learn about what it well, is. Okay. Wait, Yeah. I am not a bird watcher extraordinaire, but I do love birds. I love birds of prey, especially. <laughs> birds um, of prey. <laughs> yes. Raptors. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. My favorite bird is, uh, the African fish Eagle. Um, yes, I, I love birds. I love birds. Okay. Yeah. What's I I know bird watchers. I don't particularly do it myself, but I guess is it like a peaceful process too to just observe them in their natural habitat where you're kind of at I guess it sounds corny, but like one with nature and you're just kind of out there and it's not, you know, you're able to just find peace and just observing these natural creatures. That's what I do because I am lazy. So I'll just sit somewhere and yeah. wait. Um, but usually like morning dusk and dawn is the best for all animals i i feel like we're boring the audience out there but um dusk and dawn is the best time to see because you know animals are hunting or they're going to sleep um so then someone else is hunting them and uh a lot of the birds like to hunt 
yeah okay. in the morning and then it gets too hot during the daytime so then they all sleep okay. um yeah but there are like bird watcher groups which i never joined i think that's a little too much for me i'm also antisocial so and and i think i'm not in that age demographic yet because it's yeah. like 70 to oh, 80 years old although they are kind of getting trendy that's what a friend told me is that birds are oh. kind of in the know now like they're more Ooh. popular oh okay and... yeah i just gotta put on my yeah well they, they even have those the vests and stuff like um they're going on a safari <laughs> when they're just going you know to the local park um, so yeah and i just yeah. sit there and i'm also a terrible photographer but mm. i like to photograph birds and just put it on okay. automatic and Good to uh, know. Multiple shots, so. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. I, we're, we're expanding the audience now. We got bird watchers, <laughs> karaoke singers. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Uh, Vanya, you've been very generous with your time. I think the last thing to go over is the Serving Up Hope Foundation. And not just, I mean, you've done some stuff domestically, but you're going to Uganda, you're going to other places in the world to help impoverished youth, impoverished children, and using tennis as a vehicle to do it. It seems very fitting for you and your background and your story, but I, I ask, why was this so passionate for you and why did you decide to start it when you were still finishing up your career and really dive into it? at this point when you're still just a young lady and have a lot of options out there. Oh, I appreciate you calling me a young lady. Um, I got connected to East Africa because of my love of wildlife. And so I traveled to Uganda to see the mountain gorillas, which is one of the three places in the world that you can see them. And it's all actually in this connect interconnected forest between Congo, Rwanda, and Uganda. And um, just fell in love with the culture and the people. Um, poverty is extremely high. It is it is a difficult place to live in there for most. And I got connected to a legal aid NGO in Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda. And so it really started there. You know, what was the best way that I could help? I was also kind of in my philanthropic journey, ready to start something my, on my own. I had actually, I don't know if there's not a lot of people that know this, but I tried to start a nonprofit, but it, it was right before an injury or right before coming back from an injury. So then it kind of fizzled because I didn't have the time, but it was called Senior Storytellers. And we would write the life stories of seniors mm. um, in Florida. And I realized that, you know, while I still believe very much in the idea, tennis is my space, you know, doing running a nonprofit in itself is difficult. And if you don't know anything about anything which was me for most things then it was really hard to to stay in that industry so i knew that i wanted to do something with tennis i loved working with kids um and just you know it happened that the dots connected and i ended up there how rewarding how fulfilling has it been to be able to see yourself making an impact and an impression on kids that don't have much um it is well, it's incredibly fulfilling. I know it's again, cheesy, but when people say, oh, I just like to see the kids smiling is inspirational. I mean, it genuinely is, you know, when you see kids smile and it's just pure and they have joy. Um, but beyond that, now that we've been there for a couple of years, seeing the kids internalize tennis in a way that I never did. So it's, it's 
ironic because I never wanted to identify as a tennis player because it was so stressful for me. But for them, this is the place that they go to relieve their stress. This is the safe space for them. So for them to have pride in being a tennis player and building skills in a world where a lot of times they get told that they're worthless, but you know that that this sport has now given them meaning. Um, and then in terms of feeling like there's an impact, I mean, it's I waffle between yes, like I I love the fact that we can give them an impact, but more so that we can give them a platform to achieve all the things that they could if they had the opportunity, like I was given the opportunity. And at the same time, it's I I constantly remind myself though, there's there is a moral um quandary because you know what right do I have to go and change someone's life for better or worse for for me to go in and and say that I know what's best yeah. you know and so I think it's always good for me to continuously assess that and work with my team who they all live in the community um my team on the ground so they work with me um very heavily in terms of how we execute our programs Right. I think, and this is my understanding of it, which why it's so awesome is that in your case and a lot of players that come up in America and tennis hotbeds, that tennis is kind of, you know, the whole, it's the destination too. You're going to be a tennis player. It's a rigorous journey, but to create a, a foundation where tennis is the vehicle to just better everything, whatever the, the dreams, as you say, these kids want, they can use tennis and have fun, obviously, because it's such a fun game, but it doesn't have to be the career path. It's just a way to get to their goals and their dreams. Yeah. I, well, when I, especially when I retired from tennis, I realized that tennis has given me so much more than just an occupation, but that specific occupation of being a professional tennis player. Cause yeah, I, I was like, now what, well, I don't have anything if I don't have my career and my life that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I now have realized that tennis has connected me to many other spaces where I can make an impact that my experience and my life can have meaning. Um, And this is one of them, you know, some of the volunteer roles like USTA, um, being on the board of USTA, uh, starting this Asian American Pacific Islander Tennis Association and seeing that, that our community could be supported better and wanting to be a part of that. And just, yeah, and my story could resonate as well across the board, you know, for others that might be dealing with um, overbearing parents or trying to trying to be successful at something that you have to sacrifice everything for. And there's a lot of um, a lot of ways that I now realize that tennis has given me opportunities and provide meeting. And even if I didn't go to college, I mean, that's a very tangible way for many kids, you know, high school opportunities, I mean, even the socialization of being on a team and the self-esteem of that, and then scholarship opportunities, of course, and then professional networking opportunities, even though tennis is um, still traditionally a rich person sport, that means, hey, if you're good at it, then you can network in those circles too. Well, you're doing some really inspiring stuff. Uh, It's great to see uh, anybody give back with the way that you're doing it. Your commitment is very honorable. Uh, Vanya King, thanks so much for joining Tennis Channel Insight, and we'll have to do this again soon. I know you're also a budding broadcaster, too, so just tread lightly on my turf now. (laughs) Oh, well, no, I'll have to get some tips from you. (laughs) Yeah, whatever I can provide. I don't know. It's not much, but uh, (laughs) seriously, congrats on everything, and, uh, you know, it's inspiring stuff. Thank you, uh, Vanya King, for joining Tennis Channel Insight. Thanks for having me. 
Right, it's really wonderful to talk to Vanya King. She's doing amazing things. It's delightful to see her giving back and helping people. And uh, we'll have to get her back on this show. A lot to talk about with her. So thanks again to Vanya King. Best of wishes and best of luck to everything she's got going on in her post-tennis career. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this podcast. Tennis Channel Inside In is on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast where you can find the entire catalog of episodes along with the other shows on our network. We're on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, to name a few. And we will be back next week. John Lloyd, the uh, broadcaster and former tennis player, will be on next week's show talking about his autobiography, Dear John, and uh, a lot of other news and notes as well. The San Diego event, the WTA, the Paris Masters coming up soon. And then we got the finals. The push to the end of the 2022 season is upon us. For Vanya King, I'm Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week.